0: Hello, and welcome to Breaking Protocol. I'm your host, Bob Sadowick. Continuing with my series of new generation of political leaders, I am joined today by Mayor Alex Morse from Holyoke, Massachusetts. Mayor Morse was first elected to office in 2011 at the age of 22, and has been reelected three times, currently serving his fourth term in office. He was recognized in 2019 as a member of Forbes Magazine 30 Under 30 list for policy and law. The mayor is a graduate of Brown University with a bachelor's degree in urban studies and an alumni of Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government. Currently, Mayor Morris is a candidate for U.S. Congress from Massachusetts First District, the district where he was born and raised. He may be a new generation leader, But obviously, his experience as an elected leader, politician, and campaigner is well beyond his years. Thank you for joining me today and welcome to the show, Mayor.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Bob. Much appreciated.
0: Let's begin by providing some insight to who you are as a person and a bit about your background. Because based on your very successful resume, one could automatically assume you grew up as a man of privilege, having attended Brown and Harvard but that wouldn't necessarily be accurate, would it?
1: Yeah, it's it's quite the opposite, actually. I mean, I grew up in Holyoke. It's a city of 40,000 people and for many years has been one of the poorest communities in the entire state of Massachusetts. And both my parents grew up raised by single mothers, grew up here in public housing, met each other at a public housing complex as teenagers. And my mom, she got pregnant when she was just 17 years old. And her and my father both dropped out of high school and neither had the opportunity to to go to college. And they've worked their entire life to move out of poverty into the working class and eventually the middle class to make sure that my brothers and I had the chances and opportunities that they frankly didn't have. And my dad today still works at the same meatpacking company he started working at 34 years ago. He's still there today. And my mom, she opened up a family daycare in, in my childhood home and had that daycare for nearly 15 years. So when I think about you know my childhood and my parents' struggles, and the fact that I watch my my parents file bankruptcy, struggle to pay bills, put food on the table, watch my dad go to work at the same company every single day, um, it has certainly shaped the way that I that I view the world. And then, you know, becoming the first in my family to go to college after going through a, a the upward bound program for low income first generation college students. Was a you know profound experience to go from Holyoke to Brown and to be surrounded by such such privilege, uh, wealth and class privilege in particular. And I remember distinctly my experience at Brown being unlike my friends and classmates, and that I I stayed incredibly connected to my family and my hometown. I mean, there were very real personal struggles in my family that always kept me close to home. My mom, when she was alive, struggled with mental illness and depression most of her adult life, and and my brother Doug, my oldest brother had struggled with addiction his entire adult life. And unfortunately, just a few months ago, passed away from a heroin overdose. I mean, a very real example of the danger and destruction of the opioid epidemic at a time where, you know, overdoses are going down across the state, but they're going up here in Western Mass. And a very real challenge that our family had, even finding my brother a detox bed and treatment when he needed it the most. And so I think my lived experience, my background, you know, prepare me to go to Congress and just fight for everyday people.
0: And and we're going to talk about your campaign for Congress, obviously, but I want to address how a 22-year-old just graduated from college who came from modest means at best managed to get himself elected to mayor of a city of 40,000 people. I mean, that is just a story That's an entire podcast in and of itself. But I I think it's necessary to enlighten our listeners to that dynamic and how you pulled that off.
1: Yeah, no, it was, it seems like a long time ago at this point, it was nine years (laughs) ago. And um, I knew I wanted to give back to my hometown, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do and when, but I remember distinctly, even as a high school student, I mean, that's when I became an organizer and an activist, I, I came out when I was 16, and I started the Gay Straight Alliance at Holyoke High School. I started the city's first LGBT nonprofit organization and I got elected to be student representative on the Holyoke School Committee, junior and senior year of high school. And I was also a member of the Holyoke Youth Commission. So I got got involved in Holyoke politics, even in high school. And we just had the same people in office year after year. I mean, people on the city council for 30 years, 40 years, overwhelmingly old school, white, not reflective of the 50% of our population that was Latino, mostly of Puerto Rican descent. Um, And there's the city, I mean, paper factories shuttered, high crime, a dead downtown, white flight out of the city. And there was no new vision, no new ideas, no progressive sense of politics and vision for where we want to take the city. There was just this like quiet resignation for the way things work. And when I got to Brown, I studied urban studies. And so I got to bring my real life experience growing up in Holyoke to the classroom. And then I got to bring what I learned in the classroom back to a place like Holyoke. And... What better place for me to give back to with the education and the lived experience that I have than my hometown? Well, knowing that I had a good experience growing up in Holyoke, a good education in the public schools, but that wasn't the case for the vast majority of young people in our community. And so I remember, I actually, I studied abroad in Dominican Republic my junior year of college and improved my Spanish, came back, it was summer of 2010, about a year and a half before the mayoral election in 2011. And that's when I started assembling my campaign team. And I knew I was going up against a 68-year-old Democratic incumbent mayor who had been involved in the politics for over 20 years. And it was an incredibly grassroots campaign. We connected to people that had just given up on local government altogether. We reached out to young people, the Latino community, people that were just disaffected and pushed away from the process. And I will say, I would not be here today if I did not knock on thousands and thousands of doors in 90 degree weather in summer 2011, oftentimes by myself, the one family member or friend, and just having in-depth conversations. And for many of these folks, it was the first time that any candidate for mayor or elected official had ever knocked on their door and asked them where they wanted to take the city, what their challenges were, what their aspirations were. And there was a preliminary election in September 2011. And I only won that election by one vote, which almost never happens in politics, but it was an incredibly powerful message that we sent to the people of Holyoke, that every vote matters. And the fact that we had organized in communities that had, again, been shut out of the process, that people told me to only knock on doors in certain neighborhoods and ignore everyone else, we included everybody. And that's the kind of campaign we built and went on to win that election in November 2011 and obviously became the the youngest at 22 and the first openly gay mayor of the city at the time.
0: So you ran for mayor, you won by one vote, then you were reelected three more times. So, you're serving your fourth term. You've just turned 30 years old, and you are now currently challenging a 16 term U.S. Congressman, Richard Neal. Now, Congressman Neal is well known as a team player in Washington, D.C. In fact, He's voted with Democratic leadership over 95% of the time and has received numerous accolades from various Democratic organizations as a solid supporter of Social Security, health care, and various other Democratic platforms that are really the foundation of Democratic politics. So. Why are you, at this stage, challenging the congressman for his seat, and what differentiates you and your campaign from the service that he has provided to Massachusetts District 1?
1: I appreciate that question. And that's the fundamental message and theme of this campaign, is we acknowledge that Congressman Neal has been there for 32 years, and we acknowledge that he has incredible power right now as the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee. And number one, it's a completely different time than it was 30 years ago. We have different challenges that require a different magnitude of solutions. And in short, Congressman Neal is just unable to grasp the urgency of the moment. And right now, when you look at this district, outcomes in this district, disparities in this district, the fact that our biggest city in the district, Springfield, is still the asthma capital of our entire country, that even in the middle of this pandemic, we have hospitals closing, psychiatric hospitals closing, birthing centers closing in our communities dozens of cities and towns without basic access to broadband internet, among the worst health outcomes in the entire country here in this district, people feeling completely forgotten about, particularly in the Berkshires and in the rural parts of our district, and that we have a member of Congress that is absent, that hasn't done a town hall in over three years, in a time where people are rightfully scared about the future of their lives and the future of our democracy and the future of our country. And yes, he's the chair of the Ways and Means Committee. But he's not using his power to help us here in the district. He's using his power to benefit the corporate and special interests that have invested millions of dollars in his campaign over the past 30 years. And so he hasn't used his power to hold this president accountable. He refused to request Donald Trump's tax returns for months. He refused to seize the New York state returns when lawmakers there made them available. He only came out for impeachment when Nancy Pelosi told him it was okay to do so. On Medicare for All, he wouldn't even let members of the Ways and Means Committee talk about Medicare for All on a hearing on universal coverage. He has used his power to kill a bill that would have allowed low-income folks from using the IRS's free tax filing service after taking money from H&R Block and Intuit. He killed a bill last December single-handedly that would have limited surprise medical bills after taking over $54,000 from Blackstone, And he also killed an amendment in Ways and Means last October that would have allowed the government to negotiate lower drug prescription prices. And so he talks a lot about Medicare and Social Security. But we need improved Medicare. Even those folks on Medicare have to invest in supplemental insurance. Even the 98% of Massachusetts residents that have health insurance are underinsured, can't afford the out-of-pocket expenses, the premiums, deductibles. And this is really about what kind of Democratic Party do we want. Richard Neal is literally the number one recipient of corporate PAC money in the entire House of Representatives, more than any Democrat and more than any Republican, from Wall Street, from Big Pharma, from the healthcare lobby and from fossil fuel companies. And you can't take on those companies and industries and corporations when you're taking their money at the very same time. And so this is fundamentally about what kind of democratic party do we want? Do we want unbought members that are gonna speak truth and vote for working people and just everyday people in this country? And people here in the district want someone they can inherently trust. That when they're in the halls of power in Washington and the doors are closed, they're looking out for everyday people. And and that's why I'm running for Congress. And those are some very clear differences between the two of us.
0: You know, I was speaking with a young man from right here in Texas, where I live last week, about health care. And he is running for a state Senate seat in Texas against a pretty prominent uh, Mm -hmm. member of the state house in a very, very large district, primarily very rural district. And there are parts of your community in Western Massachusetts that are also extremely rural dis- you know, areas. You have, obviously, uh, you come from a population center, but there's a lot of the folks that you would represent that do not. And like in his district, you also have county hospitals and regional hospitals and clinics that are closing up their doors. If you get to Congress, how do you get those medical services back to those communities?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. And that's happening here in this district. I mean, in the Berkshire is one of their only inpatient hospitals closed a few years ago in North Adams and northern Berkshire County. People have to drive upwards of an hour with unreliable public transportation network to get the health care and the services they need. There's a shortage of primary care physicians linked directly to the cost of an education in this country and lack of affordability of quality education in this country. And so we have a healthcare system that is designed to maximize profit for the private sector, not to actually deliver care and protect patients and residents of this country. And so we have a system that has allowed for the private sector to profit upwards of $500 billion a year on people's sickness. And people oftentimes ask the question, well, how would you pay for a single-payer Medicare for All system, when in fact, every reputable study shows that it would be much cheaper to deliver healthcare under a single-payer system. And only under a single-payer system would we have the leverage and the negotiation power as a government to lower the cost of the delivery of healthcare in this country, from surgeries to medical care to prescription drugs, And so that's number one. And then number two, when you look at insurance reimbursements, when you think about the opioid epidemic, and treating addiction, and treating mental illness, these are things that have one of the lowest rates of reimbursement from insurance companies. So when hospitals have to make decisions about their profits, they oftentimes cut mental health services, addiction services, psychiatric services first, because hospitals and doctors are getting reimbursed at a lower rate. And so that needs to change and be reformed as well. And then I would sign on to Pramila Jayapal's Medicare for All legislation in the House that doesn't just guarantee health care as a fundamental human right, but also invest real money in building more community health centers, particularly in rural parts of our country, like the Berkshires and like the Hilltowns here in this district. We have 14 counties in Massachusetts. Hamden County in the district is ranked 14 out of 14 for the worst health outcomes. Berkshire County, the rural part of this district, is ranked 13 out of 14. And so we need new investments in healthcare and healthcare infrastructure. And Medicare for All covers vision and dental and every other aspect of healthcare that I talked about already. And Congressman Neal, again, is doing the work of the private healthcare lobby now and not doing the work for the people here in the district.
0: You know, it's interesting. Healthcare and insurance, for those of us who are self employed, and or invest in our own small businesses is an extraordinary hurdle. Premiums are really unattainable for the person who is funding their own health
1: care. And I talked about this on my debate last night, is that for families here in this district that are paying more a month in health insurance than their mortgage payment, than their rent payment, and then you think about the loss of productivity in this economy, when people are making decisions as to whether or not to start their small business. They have to worry about how they're going to get health insurance to afford it for themselves and their family. And then the cost of health insurance on small businesses for their employees. A Medicare for all system would benefit the small business community more than any policy right now as a federal government. Because when you think about the cost of doing business, and then, I mean, if this pandemic hasn't shown why we shouldn't be tying health insurance to employment, then I don't know what will. Millions of Americans have lost their job. And millions of Americans have now lost their employer-based health insurance. And so we need a system that just guarantees healthcare as a fundamental human right. I mean, right now we're essentially paying exorbitant amounts of money in what I call a private tax, when I think people would much rather pay a much smaller public tax and be guaranteed quality health care when they need it most.
0: Yeah, it's amazing to me that in this country, when you lose your job, you lose your health care. The two are you know, tied together in a way that actually, in my view, suppresses people's ability at times to seek better opportunities in their careers, because they're tied to their health care that provides health care for their children and their spouses. So it's a very, it's a very tough hurdle. And we certainly it is one that needs to be addressed. You spoke about money and politics. And we all know sure about the Citizens United uh, ruling from the Supreme Court, which basically says and has allowed anyone to throw any amount of money to any candidate uh, with rare restrictions. As a Democratic member of Congress, how would you address Citizens United?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, this is a fundamental question as to what kind of democracy we want. And more and more members of Congress mostly on the Democratic side, are swearing off the influence of corporate PAC money. And yes, we need a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United, but we also need a Democratic Party and a government that is willing to swear off PAC money, even when it's not convenient. And it's, in fact, those members of Congress that are unbought, not taking corporate PAC money, members like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez that are outraising even the Speaker of the House, and other incumbent Democrats that do take corporate PAC money, because of the power of the people. I mean, this campaign is funded entirely by people. Neil and I raised essentially the same amount of money in our second quarter of this year. 100% of our donations were from people, 80% of his were from corporations, and we're still going toe-to-toe. When you look at this presidential campaign that wrapped up earlier this year, it was Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren that far out competitors that were taking corporate PAC money. And so there is a possibility and a pathway to actually be a candidate and raise money from the grassroots. I mean, our average contribution is about 27 to 30 bucks from thousands of people around the country. And what it allows me to do, and any elected official should wanna do this, is go to Washington, get to office, and never have to wonder or think that they have to pay back big corporate donors when policies and bills come before them. And so when you're only funded by actual people, it makes a humongous difference. But I would also say, I think we need to go a step further. I think we need to push for publicly financed elections because candidates for Congress and members of Congress shouldn't be spending 20 to 40 hours a week in a small room, making calls to the wealthiest 1% of this country, asking for money, that we have members of Congress, both Democrats and Republicans, like refusing to do their duty that they were elected to do because they're in a back room making calls to donors.
0: But mayor, those, those congressional members who are dialing for dollars will tell you that they have to do that because of Citizens United in order to level the playing field. Do you, you don't believe that to be the case?
1: No, again, I would I would point to those members of Congress that are that aren't taking any corporate money and in fact outraising outraising incumbents and other Democrats that are. I mean, our campaign has essentially outraised almost every incumbent member of, of of the congressional delegation here in Massachusetts without taking a single dollar of corporate PAC money. And so it is certainly possible to run a campaign that is unbought by corporations and funded by everyday people. And that's what we're doing.
0: You know, I had an opportunity last night to watch you debate your opponent, and there was a subject matter that came up I thought was rather interesting, and I had never really heard about before, and that's called surprise medical billing. Can you talk about that for a minute and tell us what how that impacts your community and really how it impacts the American people?
1: Yeah, so 10,000 Americans a day get what's called a surprise medical bill. It's a bill that people get from a hospital, oftentimes an ambulance company could be days, weeks, even months after getting treatment. And so these are out-of-network bills and to maximize profit in a broken healthcare system. And so there had been a bipartisan bill that was almost at the finish line late last year that even this president was poised to sign. And one person blocked it, one person got in the way, and that was Congressman Richard Neal. And that was only after, I mean, only after taking $54,000 from Blackstone a private equity group that was lobbying against this bill. They had never before donated to Congressman Neal. They suddenly became his biggest donor of the cycle and Neal went, went on and killed this bill. And there are hundreds of people in this district that are still getting surprise medical bills from hospitals and ambulance companies. And they have to go through the arduous process of the bureaucracy and the healthcare system to get the bill reduced or eventually get the bill waived. And so this bill would have provided more rights and protections for patients and consumers and Congressman Neal, again, used his power to satisfy his corporate donors.
0: And he voted against that bill.
1: Yeah, not only did he, did he vote against it, but he, he killed it. I mean, he put out a white paper intentionally to muddy the waters. I mean, there were Democrats in the Senate and in the House who were livid. I mean, we heard from staff and fellow Democrats that just couldn't believe that Congressman Neal would put his corporate donors before this bill after months, even years of people working together to get it as far as it got last December.
0: You know, that's an interesting point. Members of Congress have certain privileges and influences and powers depending on committees that they're assigned to, and they get those committee assignments by the old-fashioned behind-the-scenes networking on Capitol Hill. As a freshman member of Congress, how would you pursue that influence to provide the needs that you have discussed with me today for Massachusetts District 1?
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate that question. And as I stated quite clearly in the debate last night, this district and the people here will not be losing power when we defeat Congressman Neal on, on September 1st. We'll be gaining power because we're going to go to Washington together and, and build power together to create a single-payer healthcare system, to combat the existential threat of climate change, use our power to fight for an economy that works for everyone, fight to reform our criminal justice system. And I would argue it's those members of Congress that have even been there less than two years that are changing the agenda for our party and for our country. And I would join the Progressive Caucus that Congressman Neal has refused to join throughout his 30 years in Washington. And it was in 2019 that the House, for the first time in history, had hearings on Medicare for All not because leadership thought it was a good idea, but because we grew the Progressive Caucus in 2018, and we were able to put more pressure on the leadership of the Democratic Party in the House to advance this legislation. And so even when you look at, for example, Jamal Bowman's defeat of Elliot Engel, Elliot Engel is the chair of the Foreign Affairs. It wasn't just about Jamal defeating Elliot, because Jamal won't become the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, but what it does is hold an archaic view of foreign policy accountable, and ensures that the next chair will have a different view of foreign policy, that we're moving in that direction. Same thing here with the Ways and Means Committee. With the defeat of Richard Neal, he will be replaced by a member of the Progressive Caucus that actually believes in a Green New Deal, believes in a wealth tax, believes in raising the corporate tax rate. I mean, very fundamental differences. And so I'm under no impression that I'll be the chair of the Ways and Means Committee. That will not happen. But we will make sure that there will be implications nationally to every district and every person in this country when Richard Neal does get defeated, because we'll replace him with a progressive and we'll add to the progressive caucus and the voice of courageous Democrats that have, have arrived there just in the last several years that have been speaking truth and, and showing courage that we haven't seen in the Democratic Party in many years.
0: You know, it's interesting. The Democratic Party has been screaming for the last four years or so about Donald Trump's tax returns. And we've yet to see a tax return uh, despite promise after promise and hurdle after hurdle. With that said, would you support a law that required anyone running for president of the United States to reveal their tax returns? And if so, how many years of tax returns would they be rec- required to reveal?
1: Yes, I, I think it should be a requirement for candidates for, for public office to do so, at least a an expectation after I launch my campaign for Congress I released my tax return for every year that I have been in, in public life. My first year as mayor through, through today. And so if you're running for president, I think it's important that throughout your public life, you, you show, I mean, have you been profiting off of your, your political position or not? I mean, people should not be using public office to build wealth, engage favor, and, and enter the upper class. I mean, we need more working people and working families in Washington. And to know that it's still legal in this country for Republicans and Democrats in Congress to buy stocks, to to trade on Wall Street when they're making decisions that will benefit certain industries, I mean, it's corruption at its best. And so that's why we need to reform the system. And I'm running against the guy, the one guy in Washington that actually had the power to get Trump's tax returns, and the one guy that refused to do so, the one guy that dropped the ball. I mean, we took back the House in November 2018. It wasn't until mid-2019 that Congressman Neal even penned what he calls a, a strongly worded letter to Trump asking for the returns in the first place. New York state lawmakers worked for years to make the New York returns available to him. He refused to ask for those. And so he's also, alongside Elian Engel, the only Democratic chair in this, in this um, session, to not have a single oversight hearing on the Trump administration. I mean, he has not used his power to conduct oversight on the most corrupt, dangerous administration that we have seen in our lifetime.
0: You have supported initiatives as mayor, including the legalization of marijuana. However, there are a lot of folks that find it uh, for whatever personal reason or maybe out of fear, what have you, that are adamantly opposed to the legalization of marijuana for recreational use, yet you you went out on a limb and you you supported that. Do you do you feel that there's potentially that your progressive initiatives are just too progressive for rural communities in western Massachusetts?
1: Not at all. And the vast majority of folks in this district voted in favor of Question Four back in 2016 that legalized the recreational use of, of marijuana. And I was one of the I was the first and the only mayor in 2016 to support that question. Number one, it's really the only way to combat the negative impact of prohibition and the war on drugs on black and brown communities in particular in this district and around the country. But then number two, in a city that once relied on paper and manufacturing to create wealth and build jobs and raise tax revenue, when I took office, we had 1.5 million square feet of vacant mill space in our community. And the cannabis industry has now provided an opportunity for us to fill those old mill buildings with modern day manufacturing by cultivating marijuana. It has a high return on investment and has led to the the occupancy of hundreds of thousands of square feet in our community, creating jobs in those communities that have been harmed by prohibition and raising tax revenue for a community to reinvest that in education and public infrastructure and combating homelessness and the opioid epidemic. And so only in a tax and regulated system can we actually address the ills of marijuana usage but I contest and I know that anything that we find at a local pharmacy or drugstore is much more dangerous than anything you will find at a, at a recreational marijuana dispensary. I mean, no one has ever overdosed from marijuana, and it actually has medicinal purposes. And we need national legalization. We need expungements, the expungement of records of anyone that has been prosecuted for anything that is legal now in the state and in this country. We also need to be intentional about making sure that those most harmed by prohibition have wealth building opportunities in this in this emerging industry. And I find this is something that appeals and resonates of all generations, not just young people, but people of all generations. And I think it's a mistake that our democratic platform this year doesn't call for the, the, the federal legalization of marijuana. I mean, Congressman Neal right now is sitting on the Moore Act that would advance national legalization. He refuses to have a hearing on it and advocates in this space are, are getting upset. And when I think about the rural parts of our district, I have had forums on regenerative agriculture, farmers in this district. We have more farms here than any other district in the state that want to do outdoor cultivation, that want to create jobs, that want to supply dispensaries and build wealth for their families. So we need to embrace this and, and just use common sense as we build an economy around this.
0: Last night, you debated Congressman Neal and at times, it was tenuous. It is certainly, it was passionate. And as we all know, debates can be tense. They can be at times personal, though they shouldn't be. Is there anything that resulted from the debate last night that you felt was misinformative that you would like to address here on this podcast before we close up today?
1: I think the debate was a very clear depiction of the choice that people have here in the district. I mean, do you want a member of Congress that is bought and paid for by corporate interests? Or do you want a member of Congress that answers to the people here? You know, With all due respect to Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and I thank her for her leadership, a member of Congress should answer to their constituents and the residents here, not answer to the speaker. And so time and time again, what we heard last night is that Nancy Pelosi thinks thinks I, Richard Neal, did a good job on this. She approved of my vote on this. Well, you shouldn't seek her approval. You should seek the approval of the people here in Western Mass. And this is a message that resonates with people of all political backgrounds here in the district, Democrat, independent, Republican, conservative, live in an urban community or in a rural community. We need a member of Congress that shows up. We don't have a Congressman right now that has done town halls in over three years. He is absent, unaccountable. He talked about our public schools. We have not seen him once in our public schools in the last five years. He wants to pretend that he cares about the thousands of kids in our public schools without lifting a hand in terms of resources, showing up, even talking about our progress here in the city. And so imagine having a member of Congress that instead of saying, that's the mayor's job, these policing and education, imagine having a member of Congress that actually sees himself as a partner to local officials, not just someone that blames local officials.
0: Well, on behalf of our listeners, Mayor Morris, allow me to extend my sincere thanks for you joining me today here on Breaking Protocol with Bob Sadawake. We appreciate your time. We wish you the best of luck next week in your primary election, and we thank you for the insights that you have provided as you move forward to your primary election next Tuesday. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please click and subscribe for notification of future episodes. And if you haven't had an opportunity to read my book, Breaking Protocol Forging a Path Beyond Diplomacy, it is available at your favorite online retailer or can be downloaded to your Kindle, tablet, or smartphone. Thank you once again and many blessings.